You're listening to the highlights from One Planet and Future Cities podcast interview with David Simon. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. That the importance of urban sustainability is now receiving wide recognition represents the first prerequisite for progress towards that objective. However, therein lies a double paradox. While it might at first sight seem feasible to make well-resourced, orderly towns and cities in high-income countries more sustainable, changing the entrenched, resource-intensive, high-consumption economic processes and lifestyles there, and the power relations and vested interests bound up with them, will require immense effort, as well as finance and political will. Conversely, to many people, the widespread poverty, resource and service deficits and the chronic traffic congestion of large, fast-growing cities in poor countries represent the ultimate challenge or wicked urban problem. Yet, although powerful vested interests exist there too and can be highly resistant to change, the example of Lagos under the previous governor, Babatunde Fashola, demonstrates how an energetic champion untainted by personal corruption, committed to the cause, and possessing the right connections can bring about remarkable results in a relatively short period, even in the face of some of the most severe problems in any megacity. Naturally, though, however sustainable or otherwise, cities do not exist as isolated islands of bricks, concrete, steel, glass, tarmac, corrugated iron, wood, and cardboard. Indeed, they form integral parts of wider natural and politico-administrative regions, as well as national and supranational entities on which they depend for resources, waste disposal, human interaction, and the circulation of people, commodities, and finance. Urban areas can lead or lag in sustainability transitions, but ultimately, sustainable towns and cities exist only as components of more or less sustainable societies. That is both a truism and shown historically with evidence accumulating from various urban-based societies on different continents. This further complexity creates so-called boundary problems since the interactive systems span often numerous administrative areas, complicating yet further what are already complex development, economic, environmental, political, and social and technical challenges. It's always difficult to to avoid sort of charges of being nostalgic if we talk about going back to things, um, you know, back to the past, as it were, or forward to the past. But there are principles that um, existed in particularly pre-industrial, early industrial cities, perhaps, um, and which were overturned by key technological um, inventions of the late 19th and early 20th century, in particular the railway uh, the motor car and, of course, the internal combustion engine on which it's based uh, and which led to the vast expansion of towns and cities and, crucially, suburbanization, where people who could afford it moved out of the more polluted, densely populated inner areas into low-density, uh, better lifestyle-oriented um, suburbs and even beyond the suburbs into um the sort of surrounding rural areas, and were able to commute in by fast means um, to their workplace in the city. But the result of that is what we now face as the challenge of unsustainability, 
And as you rightly say, um, the key feature that uh, still characterizes many European cities today, uh, London, Paris, Berlin, many others, is the idea that they are composed ultimately of a series of, in London, they like to call them villages, but at least neighborhoods and areas that have multiple land uses and dense social networks of interaction within a small area. That principle of what is now called by Anna Hidalgo, the, the mayor of Paris, and being um, popularized more widely by the C40's Climate Cities Leadership Network and others as the 15 or 20 minute city or 15, 20 minute neighborhood. The idea underpinning it, which is what you were flagging, I think, in, in, in your um, comment and question, is that a higher proportion of the goods and services, the activities, the social interactions that we need are obtainable within a sort of one and a half to two kilometer radius of one's home, which means that a far higher proportion of one's individual trips or multiple purpose journeys can be done on foot and by bicycle. Therefore, you use your vehicle if you have one more sparingly, uh, you use the bus or minibuses to reach slightly more distant places, and then you have transport interchanges where you connect with the metro system or the bus rapid transit or the railway or, or whatever it is to reach other parts of the large cities or indeed for intercity journeys. And that is part of what is now becoming the new best practice, if you like, in terms of urban planning, redesign, both of existing urban areas to try to revitalize inner city areas, other areas that are depressed and in need of economic regeneration, and the principles on the basis of which we need to design new areas, whether they're um, on the outskirts of bigger cities or in the context of, of middle and low income countries, designing entirely new cities, which are going to be built over the coming 20 or 30 years, and which in terms of the number of people who live in them and the number of hectares or square kilometers that they will cover of the Earth's surface will be equivalent to that built between the beginning of urbanization and the present day. It's a staggering thought, but if you think about it that way, it highlights the importance of new build, new design, according to our latest understandings of sound sustainability principles. The Sahara has been effectively moving southwards uh, at a steady pace over recent decades. And the consequences of that have been that many rural pastoralists, as in livestock herders and small farmers or people with a, a mixture of the two in the northern parts of um, countries like Ghana and Senegal, and certainly most of the people in, in countries like Mali and Niger and Burkina Faso have increasingly been unable to sustain their traditional livelihoods with seasonal migration uh, and so on, uh, especially when those migration routes get cut off by fencing and, and competing land claims. So the result has been a growing number of those people have become rural to urban migrants moving south to the capital cities or the larger urban centers in those countries. And a proportion of them land up as 
the people we pick up in the in the global literature and see on our screens trying to cross the Mediterranean, or in some cases, actually, uh, the Atlantic from West Africa to reach the Canary Islands, Madeira, um, and often as not, they get capsized in, in um, rough water, or they're not seaworthy boats and, and, and um, canoes and whatever else they might use in the first place. And so we get these constant um, harrowing tales of mass drownings or, or ships having to rescue hundreds of people at sea. So the origin of those people in many, but not all cases, is from displaced livelihoods as a result of environmental and climate change. Um, of course, there are plenty of other people who didn't get displaced, but want a better future for them and their families from those big cities. But there's an example of where climate change, environmental change, is making entire ecosystems, entire regions and livelihood systems increasingly fragile and vulnerable and perhaps unsustainable. The same is happening in other ways in, in the Horn of Africa, the uh, semi-deserts of, of Southern Africa to a smaller extent as well, and elsewhere. In Latin America, for example, many but not all of the Andean glaciers um, have been in retreat in the Himalayas, and it is those glaciers, when they melt in the summer, that provide the water for the major rivers of the respective regions in South Asia, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and so on, which provide the lifeblood of parts of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And the real concern in the longer term is that as those glaciers retreat, there is less accumulated ice, and therefore the summer melts and the flow of those rivers will decline and become more unpredictable. And therefore the whole um, pastoral system of the Ganges and Brahmaputra deltas that you know, eventually flow into the, the Bay of Bengal will get undermined. Water supply to the many mega cities and all the people in those areas uh, will be compromised. And that that also represents uh, a kind of existential crisis that's looming and may actually strike in countries like Nepal even sooner than, than in, in the lower lying areas. So there are all sorts of um, issues and they exist in different combinations in, in different places. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.